All right, go ahead and take your seats, everybody. Happy Easter to you. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? You've got nothing on us. Jesus is alive. He has beat death, hell, and the grave, and the devil. And we are on the winning team, we who know Jesus Christ. So, Happy Easter to you. If you're a guest here today, we welcome you. If you don't know me, my name is Steve, and I have the great honor of serving this congregation as lead pastor, and I feel truly privileged by that, and we certainly hope that you feel welcome here at New Life today. I want you to know that New Life is a church full of people who are being drawn to love Jesus Christ. That's really what we're all about. We're not a perfect church. You should know that. We don't have any perfect people. We all have our issues but we're trusting in the grace of Jesus to cover our sins, to cover our shortcomings, and also to empower us to love people like he did. And so we're all about the gospel and the grace of Christ. We live our lives to praise Jesus. We love because he first loved us. I want to put all my cards out on the table right up front this morning, okay? If you're one who loves Jesus, my goal today for you is to give you a firm foundation for your faith in Christ and also a firm hope for your future, both in this life and in the life to come. If you're not yet a lover of Jesus, I just want you to know him. I think if you knew him, you'd love him. There's nobody like Jesus. And so I'm going I'm to give you a foundation for faith to trust and believe in Christ today. Okay? Towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, I praise you that this Easter Sunday morning, believers in Christ all over the globe are gathering to worship and praise you in tents, on military bases, in shelters, Lord, in makeshift buildings, in secret places, in church buildings like us. And Lord, we declare that you are worthy of our worship, Jesus. I am so grateful that I'm talking to someone who's alive who's hearing my prayers. And Lord, I pray today you would do what I cannot do, which is lift the words off the printed page of our Bibles and embed them in the hearts of people and grant repentance and faith, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is Easter, and uh, as I just prayed, there are millions of Christians all over the world celebrating their belief that Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago not only died for their sins on an old rugged cross, but also rose from the grave that first Easter to give them forgiveness and eternal life. That's really what Easter is all about. I have nothing against Easter bunnies and Easter baskets and cute Easter dresses and Easter egg hunts as long as those things are not allowed to eclipse what Easter is really all about. And the message of Easter is this, a dead man who lived a perfect life and then offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world actually came out of the grave never to die again. That's Easter. Easter, the sacrificial Savior became the risen living Lord of all creation. So he's alive today. He's working through his people all over the globe to extend his kingdom's culture while at the same time preparing a place for his people to dwell with him in heaven forever, forever. That's why Christians worship Jesus Christ, because he is awesome. 
and he's the living Lord. So Easter, I believe, is primarily a celebration of Jesus, the risen Savior King. And so on this day, I think it's very appropriate for us to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implication for our lives. And I'm especially excited to talk with you about one particular implication that will affect everybody in this room and, in fact, everybody on the globe. So I'm going to start kind of in the past with what happened and work our way and end up at some undisclosed point in the future, and my prayer is that when we're all done, it'll all make sense, okay? So here we go. You can take the study guide out of your worship folder. To get us started, let me read the account of that very first Easter morning from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28 reads like this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, whenever you read the New Testament, remember there's lots of Marys, okay, lots of Marys. Two of them went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. This Easter Sunday morning, I want us to consider six facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, facts that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the event actually happened in history, but also facts that guarantee another event yet to come still in the future. And first, I want you to notice three little words spoken by the angel to those ladies that Easter Sunday morning who were stunned to come to the grave and see that Jesus' body was not there. The angel said, He is not here, for he has risen as he said. And so the first fact about the resurrection that I want us to ponder today is this. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. (laughs) Now, how many of you can understand that it's one thing to predict your own death, it's quite another thing to predict your own resurrection? Lots of people have predicted their own death. But Jesus Christ predicted that he would not only die, but rise again. And he predicted it not just once, but on several occasions. For example... John chapter 2, verse 18, earlier on in his adult ministry. Some Jewish people gathered around him in Jerusalem, the temple of the Jews standing right there. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That happened early on in Jesus' adult life. Listen to what he said to his disciples several years later as his popularity was declining and the hostilities against him were mounting. Luke 8, 31, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. 
And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That is a big time, stick your neck out, bona fide prediction. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise from the dead. Doesn't get much clearer than that. Doesn't get much clearer than that. How can someone predict something like this? Well, Jesus told us how. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of mine own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, Jesus obviously believed that he possessed authority over life and death. He could surrender his life, and he had the power to reclaim his life. It was his prerogative. That should tell you something about this man, Jesus. He believed he had immense authority. But notice his reference here to being commissioned by his father. And that indicates that Jesus believed he was doing this as part of a plan. This was a a divine, cosmic plan that he was participating in and carrying out. And it was a plan that we discover was prophesied centuries before in the Jewish scriptures. And that's the second fact, not only predicted by Jesus, but prophesied in the Old Testament. Yeah, in advance of it happening. In the Luke passage that I read, Jesus said, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. His was to be a prophesied death and a prophesied resurrection. Did you know that on Easter Sunday morning, there was a foot race to the tomb? Did you know that? So the women came back to the disciples. Two of them took off in a race. And uh, Peter and John were there racing. And in his account, John in John 20, John humbly notes that he won, that he got there first. But he pulled up short at the entrance and didn't go into the tomb. Here's what happened next, John 20, verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. That just sounds like Peter, right? Just dive on in. Let's see what's going on here. What did he see? Well, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That's interesting. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. There it is, the scripture. Not only did Jesus predict his own resurrection, but the Old Testament prophesied it as well. The Old Testament authors, you might know this, were given glimpses of a coming holy redeemer who would both die for his people and yet reign forever as king. So the inference is that he would have to be raised from the dead in order to reign. Job wrote about this. He referred to it in Job 19.25. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. The great King David wrote a number of psalms, as you probably know. A few of them were called messianic psalms. They were prophecies about the future Messiah. 
In Psalm 16, he wrote this, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. In the New Testament, Peter tells us he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Messiah. Maybe the clearest prophecy about Messiah's death and resurrection was given to Isaiah 700 years before Christ. Isaiah 53, we preached on this for several weeks. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Listen, you cannot justify many people if you're dead, right? You have to be living. Only, you can only do that if your days have been prolonged and you see the light of life again. Well, you know what? Not everybody believes this, right? You probably know some people who are skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Throughout the centuries, there have been many critics who've taken sharp aim at the notion that Jesus rose from the grave. Many of them follow in the footsteps of a guy named David Hume. Many of them basically just say this, look, (laughs) with all due respect for the Bible, resurrections just don't happen. Dead people don't come back to life again. That's against the laws of nature. That doesn't happen. Even if they predicted they would come back, even if the Bible prophesies that they would come back, it is just ludicrous. Many people think that. And they think, so whatever happened there on that first Easter Sunday morning, it was not a resurrection. There's got to be some other explanation. But you know what? As many people have pointed out, the only way to really, truly determine if something can happen is to determine if it did happen. And if it did happen, it can happen. Make sense? See the logic in that? So the real question is, did Jesus of Nazareth really in actual history now rise from the dead? Well, the most reliable, best attested historical account of that period and of that region is the New Testament, something you might be holding in your hands right now. The New Testament passes all the tests that historians have devised to establish the reliability of ancient historical accounts. In fact, when you place the New Testament next to other documents of antiquity, the New Testament smokes them. (laughs) It's not even close. And clearly, the New Testament presents a dead Jesus coming back to life. And that's the third fact presented as fact in the New Testament. And when you read the New Testament, it's not just some minor, obscure fact mentioned here and there. Each of the four Gospels, plus the book of Acts, plus most of the epistles, and the book of Revelation all refer to Jesus of Nazareth as having been raised. And make no mistake, it presents it as an actual, literal, historical resurrection. There is no legitimate way to read the New Testament accounts and conclude that Jesus didn't really die 
or that he stayed dead, or that his resurrection was only spiritual, that he just rose in people's hearts. You can't read the New Testament that way without denying its accuracy and its truthfulness. Many, many people have attempted to discredit the Bible through the years, but I like what one man said, this anvil of the Bible has worn out many hammers. The word of our God endures forever. His word is truth. He's telling us the truth about Jesus. And here's the clear testimony of the New Testament. The tomb that Jesus was laid in was found by several people to be empty on that first Easter Sunday morning. The guards who were supposed to keep the tomb secure had no explanation for how the body had gone missing. They were later paid off by the perplexed and embarrassed authorities who told them to spin a tale that while they were sleeping the body had been stolen. The dead body of Jesus was never recovered, but instead a very much alive Jesus made hundreds of appearances to people post-mortem after his death. So the New Testament presents the resurrection as a historical occurrence and also as a witnessed event, an eyewitnessed event. Now, I should clarify a technicality here. It is true that no one actually saw the resurrection the moment it happened. What I mean by that is no one saw Jesus' corpse, like, revive in the tomb, get up, unwrap the burial cloths from his body, unwrap the face cloth, carefully fold it neatly and set it off to the side and vacate the grave. No one was there and saw that. What the New Testament does record is that many people saw Jesus walking around after he died. Now, if someone dies and then you see them walking around, that's something, isn't it? That's an event worth noting. Hundreds of people gave eyewitness testimony to just that. We saw him. We talked with him. We had interactions with him. We ate with him. That's the testimony, the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. You should know it's those appearances, okay, those post-mortem appearances that give the skeptics of Christianity fits. They don't know what to do with those things, (laughs) They have to concede that people who had known Jesus before he died were sure that they saw him afterwards. Skeptics have good reason to be troubled. Think about it, just a matter of weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus, his disciples were in Jerusalem, the same city where he'd been crucified, boldly announcing that Jesus had been raised from the dead. All that the opponents of Christianity had to do was go get the dead body of Jesus put it on a big cart, roll that cart through the streets of Jerusalem, and the disciples would have been discredited, Christianity would have been aborted in its infancy, and the church never would have got any traction. You understand that? And believe me, there were throngs of Jews and Gentiles who hated Jesus who would have loved to have done that. But they couldn't, because they couldn't find the body, because it wasn't in the tomb. Because Jesus had risen from the grave. That is the resurrection of Christ. And so the Christian movement was off and running because of the appearances of Christ. 
They're documented in the New Testament. Let me read just a couple of them. Mark 16, 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating at Max and Irma's or Applebee's or whatever. He shows up. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he was risen. So other people had seen him already. Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 15, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul writes, as to one abnormally born or born out of due time. Basically, Paul was saying, look, if you're not convinced that Jesus really rose from the dead, just go ask the people who say they saw him. There's, some of them are still alive. You can go to their house, knock on their door, and they open the door, say, hey, did you see Jesus after he died walking around? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I saw him. All right, just wanted to check, because that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> Testimony of multiple eyewitnesses was that they had seen the risen Jesus. So skeptics got to come up with something to explain that, cast doubt on that, and you know what one of the chief theories is? That everybody who believed they saw the risen Jesus was hallucinating. Alrighty then, over 500 people at different times, at different places, all hallucinating, believing they had seen the risen Jesus. That's almost more of a miracle than a resurrection would be. <laughs> it's not a very strong explanation. Listen, I just want you to understand that the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is solid. Listen to me, you do not have to check your brain at the door to become a Christian. You do not have to check your brain at the door to become a Christian. It's based on history. It's solid. It's not a leap into the dark. It's a step into the light. Based on historical fact and confirmed by eyewitness testimony. And so the New Testament presents the resurrection of Jesus as a life-changing event. You need to realize that even historians who are not friends of Christianity concede, almost without exception, that Jesus' disciples were radically changed by something. How is it that that fearful, timid, cowering band of Jesus' friends went from being cowards to being bold witnesses, even willing to die for their belief that Jesus was alive? How did that happen? So there have been theories. One of the most recent popular theories that has been put forward by skeptics is the so-called cognitive dissonance theory. Stay with me on this, okay? Cognitive dissonance theory. The idea is that Jesus' disciples had such a hard time accepting the reality that their leader was dead, their dreams were done, and their movement was over, that they dealt with their grief and deep disappointment by ignoring reality and pushing ahead, becoming even more zealous for their cause, pushing ahead with the Christian movement despite knowing that it was all a hoax. 
Maybe like, you know, um, the manufacturers of the Yugo, so devastated by the failure of their product that they decide to just make a million more. (laughs) The cognitive dissonance theory. It's based on the psychological profile of how the human mind can react sometimes to deep grief and disappointment. So this theory contends basically this, that all the disciples got together and they conspired among themselves to preach Jesus as risen even though they knew he wasn't. The explanation goes hand in hand with the stolen body theory. Are you familiar with this? Which postulates that the disciples snuck down to the tomb in the middle of the night, overpowered the Roman guards who'd been stationed there to prevent that very thing, rolled the tomb away, grabbed the body of Jesus, and went and hid it somewhere. The stolen body theory. And then because of their collective cognitive dissonance, they went around telling everyone that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they began signing people up to join the Christian movement even though they knew it was a sham. You see, the theory contends that they they wanted it to happen so badly that they basically willed it to happen in their minds as a way of compensating for their grief and disappointment. Okay. Ignoring for a moment the fact that the theory, the cognitive dissonance theory, fails to account for all the appearances of, of Jesus, where hundreds of people believe that they saw him alive after his death, To me, it also fails to account for the fact that all of the disciples ended up being willing to die for their belief that Jesus was alive. I mean, think about it. I would think that when the knife was at their throat and they were being told, deny the resurrection or die, that at least one of them would have said, Okay, I give. We stole the body. It's down in Peter's garage. We'll go get it. I would rather live than die for a lie. At least one of them, wouldn't you think? I love what Pascal says. I choose to believe the witnesses who get their throats cut. These men were willing to die, and nearly all of them died as martyrs for their belief that Jesus had raised from the dead, that he was alive, and that he was the coming king. Death-defying boldness, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus in a hostile environment can only be explained by one thing. Every one of them was completely convinced that Jesus was alive and had come out of the grave. And of course, that's what the Bible says. Luke records the scene when Jesus first appeared to his disciples in his new resurrected body. It's kind of wild. Luke 24, it says, they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. So he must have looked different somehow and he said to them why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds look at my hands and my feet why did he say that scars right nail prints it is i myself touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see i have and when he had said this he showed them his hands and feet and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement he asked them do you have anything here to eat (laughs) i'm hungry Fish sandwich is sounding really good right about now. So they gave him, verse 42, a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I mean, proving he wasn't a ghost, right? And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me 
in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. If you come to New Life, you know we're, we're teaching you that the whole Bible's about Jesus. Jesus says that right there. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Friends, that is what changed the disciples from sniveling cowards to bold proclaimers of the message. They saw him. They saw Jesus Christ. And it filled them with boldness to proclaim that message. They became the loudest proclaimers of the Christian message. And of course, one of their main themes, wherever they went, wherever they spoke, was that God had raised Jesus from the dead so that Jesus, the living Lord, could save people who call on his name. And that's the fourth resurrection fact I want to draw your attention to. Not only predicted by Jesus, not only prophesied in the Old Testament, not only presented in the New Testament, But this is the message that was proclaimed loudly by the first apostles. Think about Peter for a minute. Think about Peter, the fisherman, right? Think about the change that occurred in him. On the night he was betrayed, on the night, excuse me, Jesus was betrayed, Peter is warming his hands at the wrong fire, right, out in the courtyard, and a teenage girl comes up to him and says, didn't I see you with that Galilean, that Jesus fella? And Peter, the spineless one, says, don't know him, don't know the man. In fact, it goes on to say he cursed, just to kind of reinforce his, I don't know him! A month and a half later, we find that same Peter standing before the same crowd of people who had called for Jesus' crucifixion, remember that? Crucify him, same group. Here's what he said in Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by signs and wonders and miracles which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge as part of a plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's a changed man, from coward to bold-faced proclaimer. It wasn't just him. Luke records how central this resurrection message was to all the early apostles, Acts 4.33. Now, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. See, Here's what I'm trying to to tell you. The the evidence for the literal, historical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is overwhelming. It is. To deny it, you have to dismiss the clear testimony of the Bible, explain why none of Jesus' enemies could produce his dead body, even though they would have loved to, find some other explanation for the many Jesus sightings that took place, hundreds of them, come up with a decent-sounding explanation for how those timid disciples got transformed into bold witnesses, not to mention the conversion of the persecutor Saul, who hated Christians. Plus, you've got to account for the rapid spread of Christianity across the Roman Empire in the first century. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, how do you account for those things? I'll tell you how I account for it. Easter. (laughs) It happened. It happened. Easter really happened. That's the only explanation that's satisfying to me. 
I mean, you'll have to make your own decision about that. But now, here's where I'm headed, okay? Easter has implications for you and for me. Jesus being raised has definite ramifications for your life and for mine. And many people don't understand this. Many people think that the events related to Jesus seem so irrelevant to our lives now here in the 21st century. I mean, after all, whether it really happened or not, that was 20 centuries ago, what does that have to do with my modern life in 2014 with my smartphone and my dish network and my digital lifestyle and my Twitter and, and, you know, does it really matter to my life today? Who cares that some people believe that a dead Jewish man came back to life 20 centuries ago? What's the big deal? And I would say, please don't make the eternally regretful mistake of thinking like that. Here's why it matters. Fifth fact, Jesus' resurrection previews the raising of all believers. He said, because I live, you also will live. Because I defeated death, I will raise you one day. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One reason every human being needs to care about the resurrection of Jesus is that the Bible ties that event to a future event still to come in which Jesus will raise other people from the grave. His resurrection, his resurrection previews your resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise, what evidence will we have that he's able to raise other people? Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, every descendant of Adam will die, you will die, I will die, so in Christ we'll all be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, Jesus first, then when he comes those who belong to him. You see, the resurrection of Jesus gives me a solid foundation for my confidence that those who belong to him, and I count myself in that group, will also be raised from the grave one day and we will see him and dwell with him forever. His resurrection previews your resurrection. And when will that happen? It says, when he comes. You see that? And that leads me to my final point this Easter Sunday morning. It's one that I can only touch on today, but I'm going to develop more fully the next two weeks. So you need to come back if you're a guest. You've got to come back the next two weeks. And it's this, number six, the resurrection of Jesus prefigures and guarantees his future return as the risen ruler, as king. And he's coming back. He's coming back. Many in our world don't believe this. I mean, if you went into your office tomorrow and said, hey, coworker, uh, do you know Jesus is coming back? They might look at you funny. You might get all kinds of strange responses to that. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. Hebrews 9, 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he was judged, will appear, what does it say? A second time. 
He was here once. He's coming back. Not to deal with sin. Not then. He's already done that. But this time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh yes, there is a divine cosmic plan for this world. A plan that was crafted in the mind of God himself. It's unfolding daily in our world by his divine providence. History is headed somewhere. It's going somewhere. History is moving towards a coming and a coronation. Jesus is coming back. Please understand the resurrection of Jesus was not some isolated event that stood alone in history and has no bearing on today or tomorrow. The one who promised to rise from the grave and did it also promised to come again and he will do it. That promise guarantees this promise. You say, does the Bible promise, really, that Jesus is going to come back to earth? Well, yeah. Jesus himself said so. John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and take you to be with me, that where I am you may be also. You know, when Jesus rose back into heaven, when he ascended back up into heaven, the disciples were standing there kind of gawking up into the heavens like you would have. Acts 1 says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus said he'd come. Angels said he'd come. Paul promised that Jesus would return in Titus 2, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the book of Revelation, John records some of the final words of Jesus in Scripture, and behold, I am coming soon. He's coming back. He's coming back. Of course, our question when we hear about his return is what? When? How soon? How soon is soon? When will Jesus return for his people and judge unbelievers? And you need to know the Bible offers some signs, some indicators that his coming is near. And we're going to get into that in depth next weekend. So did I mention that you need to come back and hear me talk about the signs of his coming? I pray you'll be here for that. For now, I just want to whet your appetite by pointing out one fact about his return I'll let the scriptures speak for themselves. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. He would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, borrowing from the imagery of Jesus. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Some of you know what that's like. (laughs) And they will not escape. But verse 4, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So when will Jesus return? 
We're not told the exact date. No one knows the day or the hour. But we are told that his coming will be sudden and unexpected, and many will be caught unprepared. Many will be caught off guard. Only those who are not in darkness, who are prepared and aware of the signs, will not be surprised. And so next week we'll dive into that. So I hope you'll come back. So I want to close this Easter sermon by, by saying this. Whenever an individual or a group of people is privileged to hear the message of the gospel, which is the death of Jesus for your sins and his burial and his glorious resurrection so that you could be justified in the sight of God by a living Savior, whenever anyone hears that message, a response is called for calls for a response. And so on this Easter, I'm calling each of you to respond to the gospel. And I wrote out some possible responses that you might have. The first one I've wrote, written there on the back of your outline says, number one, at the core of my being, Steve, I believe this message, and I'm confident that I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I know I belong to Him, and I first repented of my sin and trusted in Christ Christ's sacrifice in 1974, 1987, 1996, 2004, 2013. Some of you, that's your response. I, I, I believe this. I'd encourage you to put, put the date when you first repented of your sins, turning away from your sin and embraced Christ fully. But a second response that some of you might have is this. Well, I've heard this message before, Steve, but today my eyes have been opened to what it really means. I get it. I get it now. And for the first time today, right now, I'm placing my full trust in Jesus to forgive me, to save me, and make me his own. I pray that's some of your response today. Today, right now, I get it. Third response I've heard this message before, but I'm not sure that I've ever responded to it personally. I now sense God drawing me to Christ. I would appreciate it if someone could help me understand what it would mean for me to believe the gospel and truly be saved and belong to him. I, I, I need someone to come alongside and help me understand. I have some questions. Maybe that's your response today. Or maybe number four. I'm familiar with this message, but I have some doubts Please pray for me that God will open my eyes to the truth and give me the faith to believe even though I don't understand it. And I would be glad for someone to contact me and help me work through my doubts. Maybe there's some of you like that today. A fifth possible response. Steve, I understand this message, but I, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't consider myself a Christian. I have little interest in exploring the claims of Jesus further. That could be some of your response today. I would have to say that I hope and pray that response number five is not your response. If it is, I appreciate your honesty. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ gave you a great privilege today of hearing his gospel message. And that should tell you something. It should tell you that he cares for you deeply. He wants you to know how to belong to him. And now you know. And you're responsible for that knowledge. Know this. Know that Jesus died to pay for your sins. Past, 
present, and future, the sins you haven't even committed yet. Remember when he died on the cross, all your sins were future. <laughs> There's always someone, especially on an Easter weekend, you came today, you know, your family drug you here or whatever, and you're, here, you're thinking, I don't, I don't even feel worthy to be here. I had someone tell me this last night. I don't, I don't feel worthy to be here. I kind of wonder if the walls are going to cave in on me, you know? And I just want you to know, Jesus Christ loves you. He wanted you to hear this message. He wants you to know that he made the ultimate sacrifice so that your sins could be dealt with and you could belong to him. And then he rose from the grave to prove he was the son of God and he's alive today. And he's waiting for you to turn away from your sin and selfishness and idolatry and put your trust in him fully. I pray that you do. I pray that you do. Because he's coming again. And trust me, you don't want to experience his final judgment. You do not want to experience the wrath of the lamb you don't 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 trust don't take my word for it read the bible (laughs) read revelation you do not want to experience that and so please soften your heart towards christ before it's too late repent of your sin turn from it believe in christ believe his gospel and be saved this easter sunday the bible says today is the day of salvation today if you're not yet a believer in Christ. May it be so for many of you today. Will you pray with me? There's a sinner's prayer recorded in the Bible and it's very simple and it goes like this. God have mercy on me a sinner. (laughs) If you've never prayed that prayer from a sincere heart, would you do that this morning? Remember, Jesus is alive. He's listening. Would you just pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this room, many would be granted repentance and faith today to believe in you and be saved. I pray that those that have doubts would take the initiative to seek out those who can help them, at least let us know that. Lord, I pray that no one within the sound of my voice would experience the judgment for their sins that you've already bore in your own body as you substituted yourself for them. Help people understand, Lord. Help them get it, that it's faith, it's believing, it's trusting in what Christ already did for them, not trying hard to be good enough to earn your acceptance. Help them get it, Lord. I plead on behalf of every person sitting here today. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would say, Steve, God's talking to me right now about my relationship with him, the state of my relationship with him. Would you just lift your hands up around the room? I won't embarrass you. I just want to know God's talking to me about my relationship with him. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I see a lot of men. Praise God. A lot of women as well. Many, many of you. You can put your hands down. Lord, Hear the prayers of these people. Have mercy on them as sinners, Lord. I pray in Christ's name, amen. One last thing, and we're going to stand and worship our risen Savior in just a moment. Would you take the little white card out again? You you filled out your information earlier. 
there's like an inside flap. Would you just do me the favor of writing down the number of your response today? Remember I gave you those one, two, three, four, five, and if you're a one or a three or a four, just, just write the number down in there. I would appreciate knowing that. If none of those really fit your response, write number six, make your own. <laughs> and let me know how God is, is dealing with you about these matters, okay? Thank you for that. Let's stand together. Let's sing to the Lord.